afternoon, everyone, and welcome to episode 27 of the Retrospectives podcast. My name is Patrick Arthur, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, James Terlings. How are you this fine afternoon, James? I am so good, Patrick. I had just booked to get my internet upgraded because down here in Australia, our internet fucking sucks. And uh, mm. it's been a long, long time coming. Currently, I've been stuck on, you know, a, a nice uh, solid six megabits per second download <laughs> speed, which is like barely usable. And we're upgrading it to 100. So, uh, you know, hopefully uh, I'll actually be able to use the internet finally. So, so you guys are finally getting NBN because uh, when I was we're last actually not even getting it. NBN yet um that's not even until the end of next year we're just getting regular old cable all uh, right but it seems to hit similar speeds to mbn so it doesn't really matter too much either way yeah. I, guess. I mean as long as i can um download something without destroying the entire house's internet that'd be great <laughs> thanks yeah you're finally getting on my level i've had um decent internet for a long time i'm sure to a lot of our american listeners this isn't anything special at all but uh for us it was a big deal when these upgrades finally came in anyway thank you everyone for joining us today for episode 27 we are the retrospectives podcast each fortnight we aim to bring you a classic game review from a modern perspective but this fortnight's a little different this is part two of our 2019 wrap-up. Originally, we wanted to do a mailbag episode and uh, include a Game of the Year sort of uh, episode all, all in one where we go over the best and worst aspects of all the games we played for the podcast. But uh, it turned out we got into a lot more arguments than we expected <laughs> in the mailbag episode. As is par for the course. <laughs> as, as always seems to happen. So uh, we decided to split it in two. So last fortnight was our mailbag episode. And today, we're all going to be covering all the best and worst aspects of all the games that we played for the podcast in 2019. Uh, think of it as an Oscars sort of situation. Um, for example, we'll have a category like the story. We'll talk about the worst story with uh, with a runner-up, and then we'll move on to the best story also with a runner-up. Yeah, what we, hope to, um, what we hope to provide you guys with is, you know, maybe if you don't want to go through every single episode of the past year, you can take a listen to this one and then, you know, kind of pick and choose based on the ones that we recommend in this episode. Yes, this is, this is a best of, and it probably also should give you a clearer idea of uh, what you should avoid because uh, <laughs> there were some very suspicious games that we played uh, throughout the year, although exactly what they oh, are. yes, there were. <laughs> James and I may have disagreed on. But those are the good episodes. So if you want to hear us <laughs> the complaining. The ones with the arguments, yeah. Um, yeah, keep an ear out. Uh, so I see no reason to delay it any further. So let's jump straight into our very first category. So our first category is graphics or art direction. So which game had the best graphics or art direction and which game had the worst? I think to make it more fun, we're going to start with the bad and then make our way to the best. So, James, what is your runner-up for which game had the worst graphics and or art direction? So my runner-up wasn't the worst-looking game overall, but it did have the single worst instance of texturing that I've seen in a very long time. This game takes a tiny textures and stretches them for entire levels across the floors, the walls, and over massive surfaces, leaving a muddy, blurry mess just 
everywhere. Can you guess what game I'm talking about? Is it Armored Core? Yes, it is Armored Core. <laughs> and while Armored Core doesn't quite get the worst spot, because I really liked the look of its mechs and of the, you know, the player character model, I really think that its use of texture work is probably some of the worst I've ever seen in a 3D game ever. Yeah, so James, just spoilers for what my upcoming category, I actually had Armored Core listed as the worst graphics out of them all, not just the runner-up, but straight up the worst. (laughs) I think uh, a big part of the problem wasn't just the stretch textures. It's that the environments that we were exploring were very bland and uninteresting. It's a lot of sewers and facilities and badly textured military bases. It's all browns and greys and it's just not a very inspired look. And you're in these military bases that are just empty square rooms with no clutter in them or anything other than maybe a few pillars reaching towards the ceiling. There's like hardly anything to look at. I think the only level that stood out to me were those ones that had maybe the the biological zoo inside of them with the mm. little enclosures. Other than that, I really can't remember anything other than, you know, brown and grey walls just either side of you for miles. Yeah, a bunch of boxes. It also didn't help that the draw distance was so low, so as you were walking along, mechs would pop into view or other visual things would pop into view. Yeah, Armored Core was a very ugly game and it didn't help that it was uninspired either. In a post-apocalyptic mech setting, I am sure you can do a lot more with the visuals than they did there. Well, I mean, just look at something like Evangelion. Like, Evangelion isn't a video game, of course, but that's a mech game that has fantastic use of colour and way more interesting mech designs than uh, than anything in Armored Core. You're, of course, talking about um, Evangelion for the N64. <laughs> did, did they make a video game version of it? <laughs> yeah, they did, and you even said video oh game earlier, so um, I'll have that's to force like, you through it. <laughs> that's like a video game of that anime seems so absurd to me. Like, it's it's like so missing the point in a way i I don't really understand that all right so we've got my runner-up and your least favorite so what's your runner-up patrick so james before you get too triggered (laughs) i uh i did not pick this to make you upset oh yeah this is what i legitimately believe i don't believe my worst runner-up was vagrant story Vagrant Story was, for me, one of the best-looking games that we did. It didn't reach my top two, but uh, I probably would have put it a close third. So I'm kind of upset that you do this to me. So, so James, I um, I had quite a few uh, runner-ups for this category. Like, I, it was very hard for me to narrow down which game I disliked the look of the most. So um, the other ones I was looking at were, like, Ape Escape and Tony Hawk's. A couple of other PS1-era sort of clumsy looking ones but in the end i had to go for vagrant story because while i do believe that there are moments of visual brilliance in this game particularly in the cutscenes, i still believe that the vast majority of the time you spend with this game is moving through identical looking blocky ugly textured rooms with no super visually distinct features and It's just an endless slog as you move from one identical boxy room to another identical boxy room. In terms of putting, of raising, I guess, a new idea that that I've become aware of that has, that I think better explains my dislike of it, I think that when it comes to 3D spaces, 
it's really important for me to be able to identify the broader visual space that these game worlds uh, supposedly represent and occupy. And I think Tony Hawk's Pro Skater is a pretty ugly game, right? Like it's all browns and it's skate rinks and things like that. But a skate rink or even the levels like the mall or the the rocky mountain race levels where you go down, those were 3D visual spaces that you explored and occupied and that I kind of understood how they all fit together. Vagrant Story just felt like identical rooms one after the other. And I think that the feeling of never really being exposed to new visual sites or understanding how all these rooms fit together into a broader structure really, you know, detracted from my potential enjoyment of these graphics. Yeah, I don't agree with you. I think that especially the final level um, looked absolutely breathtaking in places. Um, There were a bunch of cave sections in the basements that did look pretty brown and drab, but like for the most part, I honestly think that wasn't the majority of the game. But um, we've done this argument to death, um, just much like the next argument we're going to have, which is my worst game of the show. And I think uh, it'll be no surprise to you, which was my counterpoint to your vagrant story in the episode we did it my least favorite looking game was call of duty one. Oh my god call I of can, duty I... one doesn't do graphics or textures the worst of any game we've played it commits a much bigger sin than that it looks utterly boring and bland and just completely unengaging visually i cannot remember a single level from that game other than you know from a gameplay point of view it just looked so dull yes it was a boring world war ii shooter but they could have done anything to make it more enjoyable to the eye the character models were terrible and blocky there was no artistic touch to be had anywhere or you know liberty taken to make the characters look more inviting i just found the entire game to be utterly bland and devoid of personality armored core has a lot of bad textures but it's also a military game that manages to put its own flair on it and yes i know that call of duty is a historical piece but really there are a lot of cool cities that they could have spruced up a lot especially in the russian sections to make it a bit less bland basically from your feelings towards this it seems to me that you have more of a problem with i guess the aesthetic of world war ii than you do necessarily call of duty's depiction of it because while i agree with you that stalingrad as some is one of like the most ugly parts of the game there's kind of like these big open areas where there's not much of anything at all i think call of duty one does a very reasonable job of depicting um you know things like the various weapons and tanks and anti-aircraft and trenches and all the other things that you would associate with world war ii in addition to that i find that call of duty one has something that a lot of modern shooters lack which is complete visual clarity. Modern shooters are so messy. They're so 
your screen is so visually cluttered with crap and shrapnel explosions. Maybe so. clear in terms of the character models and what you're seeing on the screen, but that game's UI is honestly the least clear and blurriest mess I've seen in a game. Well, um, how, what do you need out of a UI? You just need an ammo count and that's really it. Like, it's certainly utilitarian, but I don't really have a super big problem with the UI. It's just smeared over the screen. Like, every number is, like, warped and jagged and it just looks awful like this is a 2d piece of art it should be able to hold up even today but it just doesn't okay yeah i i got to say i don't i didn't really notice the poor ui as you put it for me i uis generally don't bother me i guess i'm more of a strict utilitarian i don't really care about the blurred text in the ui as long as it as long as I can glance at my ammo count in a first-person shooter, that's the main thing that matters. And the health bar is uh, is a nice continuous bar that you can clearly see mm. that's centralized on the screen. Yeah, I, I think that, yes, World War II nowadays is kind of like a boring setting because it's been done to death. And Call of Duty 1 is a primitive depiction of it because it when it was made, we lacked the technology to stuff it to the brim with detail. But from a usability point of view, I thought the graphics were a cut above uh, modern shooters. Guess I don't mind the aesthetic of World War II nearly to the degree that you do. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I can't get over you calling Vagrant Story brown and bland when that's the entire Call of Duty. Like, even something like Quake, which we did, which was a very brown game and I criticized it as such during the episode, it is like dripping with atmosphere and like haunting enemy designs. This has none of that. This is just dull. On a purely technical level, this is nowhere near the worst game we did. I still think that's Armored Core, but Armored Core was at least somewhat interesting to look at some of the time i fully admit that cod you know f just represents a historically accurate ish take on world war ii and it does a fine job at that but it's still boring i mean if nothing else uh call of duty one's maps are far better at depicting a 3d space than anything in vagrant story I think the first-person perspective um, gives me a lot of immersion in a way that the weird top-down perspective in Vagrant Story didn't. But uh, as we have revisited this argument many times before, I'm sure that this will be one that we'll have to just agree to disagree, disagree. on. Disagree, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As previously mentioned, uh, my my worst worst graphics is, uh, is Armored Core, uh, which was your uh, runner-up. Yep. So uh, let's move on to our best ones. Uh, what was your runner-up for best visual design or art direction? Okay, this one was actually kind of hard for me. Um, I think the the winner winner of this category is far and away like no contest. I don't think there's going to be an argument about the best looking game that we did so far. The second one was much harder for me. And I've got to say, I had to go for something that purely entertained me here rather than something, you know, technically proficient. So my runner-up for best graphics um, that we played on the podcast last year goes to Psychonauts. Um, I think Psychonauts mm -hmm. at a technical level hasn't held up too well, honestly, these days. There's a lot of like weird mushy textures and some weird jaggies everywhere. And the game just looks really ugly in parts actually and 
almost intentionally so. But this game has some of the best environmental storytelling that I've seen in any game ever, and it does so by using its art style and its art assets to the fullest effect that I've seen in a long time. Especially when you take something like Black Velvetopia, which wears its, like, Day of the Dead and high contrast art style on its sleeve, and it's a really visually stunning level. A lot of the others are similarly awesome to look at, such as um, Boyd the Milkman's Schizophrenic Inner Self, which is just a mess of tangled pathways and creepy looking senses. I love Psychonauts. I love the way this game looks and the way it um, expresses a character's inner world to the player is excellent. I think um, I think Psychonauts is a great choice for me. Psychonauts is like one of the most visually creative games ever made. The game is like riddled with visual metaphors. Even the collectibles you're getting are figments of imagination. The memory vaults, which are literally vaults, are uh, running around on legs. Yes, uh, and the emotional <laughs> yes. baggage. Yeah. It's a level of like visual creativity uh, far beyond anything in like Banjo Kazooie, where you're collecting jigsaw pieces and note pieces and notes because you know, I mean, what else are you yeah. going to collect? I love that every single time you go into a new mind, into a new level, you get a completely different visual landscape. Yes. Like every single level in this game is completely and utterly distinct from the last. And they're so good at communicating the owner's inner mind to the player. Like, Sasha Nine, one of the secret agents of the game, is very stoic and uptight, and his mind is a cube, and it's well-organized, and it reflects him as a person. And it's, like, the kind of thing that you notice instantly. As soon as you see that it's this perfect cube, that instantly tells you something about the character. And the same is true for mm -hmm. Boyd's inner schizophrenic world, where everything's all over the place and he's mumbling to himself and you know there are all these paranoid secret agents everywhere you think you reflect his schizophrenic paranoia and i think that it does such a good job of this that you know it really is a joy to look at because not only does it look cool but it's constantly imparting new information onto the player so it's you know um, mentally stimulating at the same time <laughs> mentally stimulating <Yeah>. get it <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no i um i think i think psychonauts is a um is a fantastic choice it was one i certainly considered but was only barely edged out by my honorable mention mm. which is uh diablo one really so, okay yeah, Di Diablo 1 is a game that we've talked a, a lot about, you know, outside of the podcast. Uh, a lot of the people in our community are super into the ARPG genre yep. and all the different iterations of it. But for me, the main advantage of Diablo 1 over everything is its, um, is its art style and its art direction and the atmosphere that that art direction cr creates. Like, it is all in rather low resolution, but it's wonderful lightning, uh, so lightning. It's wonderful lighting, uh, the enemy design, and a special shout out for the animation of the enemies, particularly the death animations. Every single time an enemy dies in Diablo, it feels so good. Yes. Like when you when you kill a skeleton and they kind of crumple to the ground with that beautiful death noise, or you kill a goatman and they get beheaded by their own blades. It's just it just feels incredible to explore the world of Diablo. And I think that it's in large part due to the um, visual direction that they've come up with with the game. I think the music and sound design also plays a heavy part in creating that atmosphere. 
but I, I think that the visual design is an important part of it as well. Yeah, I considered that for this, but ultimately I turned it down because while I thought the animations were kind of cool, I don't consider them good enough to be put in this category. And the atmosphere is, as you said, incredible. But for me, I guess we played a lot of games with good atmosphere this year, like Silent Hill and Quake and Thief 1. And to me, this was the best of the bunch, but only by, you know, a small margin. So it didn't stand out too much for me when I was making my final choice. But I do agree. Diablo 1's atmosphere is shockingly good for how old it is. Yeah, I mean, the game was released in 1996. Every time I read that, I I kind of, I kind of take a step back because it doesn't makes sense to me that I enjoyed this uh, this game visually as much as I did. But the truth is that I think that this dark visual direction is just perfectly executed. It's it's a wonderfully good-looking game. Um, so, James, what did you think was the absolute best game in terms of graphics or art direction? Okay, um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say we probably chose the same game. I think so. I think we definitely chose the same game here. So I'm going to go ahead and say that the best looking game we played of the last year was Beautiful Joe. God Beautiful damn it. Was it. Was it wrong? Are you saying something else? Yeah, absolutely. I'm saying really? something else. Yeah, okay. yeah. Sorry, you go ahead. Okay, so I think Beautiful Joe is by far the best looking game we played last year. Um, by a country mile, this game would look incredible if it was released today. Perhaps with, you know, some minor touch-ups on the texture work and the sharpness and clarity. But other than that, this game has held up fantastically with its crazy Sentai art style. You know, inspired by Western comic books and it just, it's got these deep blacks and this bright color palette that just looks incredible i think that the graphics absolutely pop out at the audience and every time somebody came into my room while i was playing through this game um, they always commented on how does this game look so good when it came out so long ago but it does it just really pops out at you i just love looking at this game yeah i um i think beautiful joe firstly i i think that it's a fine selection i, th- I think it's a very uh good looking game i think that this basically boils down to a matter of taste and the thing is i just personally don't love this sort of visual design i know you're nowhere near as into marvel movies as most of the community but i kind of not at all i kind of got into that for a while i've kind of pulled back from it but it led to a little bit of comic book fatigue i guess you'd describe it i kind of got a little over that whole genre and art style and the tropes behind it. I still enjoy uh, Watchmen. Like, I think Watchmen's fantastic. I really liked The Boys and the subversion of those tropes. But uh, when it comes to comic books, I'm like, I'm just a little over it. I'm not like anywhere near as hyped up about it as I used to be. And when I saw Beautiful Joe, you know, a Power Rangers, you know, superhero mashup visual style... It just didn't appeal to me as something I loved. I, I think that technically it's very well done and I can understand why you liked it as much as you did, but it just didn't make it into my favorites. Okay. I think um, I think this game does shine above the others by a considerable mile. I don't think this game's ever going to look bad. You could play this game in a hundred years and I think its art style is going to hold up. Much like, you know, we've mentioned before that cartoony art styles, you know, are going to stand the test of time a lot better than uh, realistic looking graphics, which you're going to get one-upped and one-upped repeatedly um, as time goes on. 
Can I take a guess at what your favorite game was? Absolutely. I think you should be able to get it now. Yeah, I think there's only one other game that stood out visually in the entire year for me, and that was Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Was that the one? You nailed it. Castlevania Symphony of the Night was my, I thought it was the most beautiful game we played in the entire year, and I was lucky to play it so early on in episode four. Castlevania Symphony of the Night shows the mastery of art that the um, designers of video games had been working on in the you know into in the NES days and then the Super Nintendo days because when the PlayStation 1 came out and everyone started moving to 3D titles Castlevania Symphony of Night bucked the trend and they stuck with a 2D hand drawn uh hand pixel arted sort of style and I think it looks absolutely stunning I think the animation is fantastic even something as simple as the way Alucard moves along and balances at the end of a ledge when he's standing there he's so graceful yeah he's so graceful you've got those beautiful background visages the one that always comes to mind is when you get to that cathedral where there's that giant sword surrounded by about 50 other weapons you can just see that stained glass in the background I don't think it's perfect. I think there's quite a few areas in Symphony of the Night where there's just like staircases laid up on top of staircases and it can lead to, it's a little, it's a little ugly and repetitive, but the artistic direction here is incredible. I, I think this is a game that could be released today and it would be gorgeous. And I think that a lot of games try to ape the brilliance of Castlevania Symphony of Night's graphics. I think that's true of its direction. I don't know if the actual execution holds up too well today. Like, it still looks great, but if this was to be released again, I'd, the, I think there would be a sizable amount of extra polish needed to bring up to today's standards in terms of kind of the clarity and the sharpness of the visuals. The direction is excellent uh don't fault that at all and it's also the kind of direction that isn't too common these days i can't really think of another kind of series of games that kind of captures the like ballroom elegance i'm gonna say that this game does Mm -hmm. yeah there's a lot of um i guess nostalgia indie titles that come out that i think try and capture childhood adventure is broadly what i'd say with kind of chippy music and like a more upbeat feel but there's something more serene and beautiful about the the graphics and look of Castlevania Symphony of the Night. I, I do admit that it's not perfect, but in terms of what blew me away and what I enjoyed experiencing the most visually, it was definitely Symphony of the Night. I definitely agree that I prefer the direction of this game to Beautiful Joe. Mm-hmm. I think the like the serene art style that this has going on is more preferable to me. But I think that ultimately the execution isn't as good um, and that this game isn't going to hold up as well as years go on. But I do agree. This was definitely, you know, top three. Man, I'm, I'm super impressed, James. We managed to get get through one question without ever yelling at one another so I, I don't know if we can keep this up but uh let's keep going yeah let's hope <laughs> although um, i'm sure we're going to get into an argument once we get to maybe story or even this <laughs> category which is favorite character um so let's starting from the bottom who was the runner-up for your least favorite character across every episode of the show so this was this was a difficult one for me to figure out because there were so many bad characters i knew i knew immediately what my worst one was but figuring yeah. out the runner-up was a lot more difficult 
So I eventually chose Tony Redwood from Police Noughts. So just so you guys understand who he is, um, Tony Redwood is a frozener in Police Noughts. He's an artificial human who was custom bred to excel in outer space, both physically and psychologically. Because in the world of Psychonauts, sorry, I said Psychonauts, in the world of Police Noughts, humans aren't designed for space and they suffer a lot of uh, problems they breed these special uh, special humans to, uh, to to best live in outer space. And, uh, yeah, he was probably the most disappointing character uh, that in the in the entire game and in most pretty much every game I played. I think that there was a real opportunity for them to leverage the Frozeners as being part of the bad guy's plan, and it's just, like, weirdly left completely absent. The Frozeners are just a thing that exists in the world of police noughts when really they probably should have been the central driving thing to help humanity retake the stars. Yeah, what I feel like you're getting at is that ultimately you like the idea of these characters, but the execution is just so poor that it hits the like disappointment kind of territory. It was shocking. And in addition to that, him as an individual character, not just as a Frozener, was just incredibly confusing. Yeah. So, so he starts off pretending to be nice to Jonathan on, on a plane ride to the orbital where he lives for no apparent reason. And then when he meets him later, he is just an absolute dickhead to him once again for no clearly explained reason. Like it's, it's... I would have been okay with it if during the police uh, station levels he had been nice to you as well. At least then you can say he's kind of manipulating the main mm-hmm. character into a false state of security. But he just like, ha, plot twist, I'm an asshole when he has absolutely no reason to do it. Yeah, he just flicks a switch. And the other problem I had is that he is the most obvious bad guy of all time. He he was he was so obvious. I was certain he would end up not being the bad guy because I'm like, no, Kojima respects my intelligence more than this. Turns out he doesn't, and he's just obviously an evil guy with no clear explanations. Patrick, you're a filthy guy, Jen. Of course, Kojima doesn't respect your intelligence. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, you have to be a European to understand his genius, right? Yeah, yeah. Remember, guys, Americans just don't understand Death Stranding. <laughs> yeah. So, so Redwood was, um, was yeah. He's just extremely disappointing. They didn't do anything interesting with him. He acted inconsistently and with weird mood swings. I, I don't understand his character at all. I want. I. It makes me wonder if there was more of his story that was ultimately cut out in the final edit of this game because. Yeah, there's just too much missing, too much unexplained to make his character make sense. Yeah, I think that's a good option. Um, So I actually cheated a bit here. I don't actually have a runner-up. I just Mm. have a big lump of characters that I collectively consider to be the worst characters we've done in the show okay. um do, do you do you have any idea what they would be i have no idea what you're talking about so hit me okay so i think the worst characters that we've done on the show so far are every character from f-zero gx <laughs> 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 the yes. characters in this game 
are so bad. Like, they have, like, barely a semblance of one-dimensional personality each. They have no writing. They have, they're, like, they're not even funny. Like, this series should have come across as really cheesy and funny and hilarious, but these characters aren't funny. They're just, like, cheesy in a bad way, and they say, like, two lines each throughout the entire game. Um, yeah, the, just... the, reason, the reason you can't nominate a single one of them is that not a single one of them has enough characters to to, uh, to pick on yeah they just all suck like they're terrible yeah um i i can't disagree with you there uh like i said i was considering them as well but i was like yeah but i can't pick one character that's bad enough so <laughs> they're not so even they're one. almost not even characters are they are they valid options for this category that's how <laughs> i felt well at least <laughs> at least they look somewhat different but that's that's there's the alligator man and there's the big bull guy and yeah, there's the Samurai Joe who's a At fat At the very biker. last episode, there's the three talking heads who um, are apparently all-powerful, but defeating them rewards you with this cool championship belt and nothing else. Like, I don't <laughs> understand. Yeah, no, um, not not a bad choice, even if you did cheat a bit. <laughs> uh, so my, my worst, and I think you can probably guess this, but my worst single character, my most hated character in the all of the games we played was Quote from Cave Story. And in fact, I hated Quote from Cave Story so much that I wanted to write an article explaining how much I hated this stupid character. I found him really innocuous, to be honest. I just think you're overreacting. <laughs> so basically, the problem with Quote is that I can't for the life of me figure out how and why he does anything at any given moment. I think conceptually the problem starts with him being A, a silent protagonist, B, with amnesia, and C, this is not an RPG, so you have no way to control his actions. So you're given this empty vessel of a character who you can't, and you can't give him like there are no choices that you can use to define his character. So the only way you can kind of get a grip on the nature of his character is by observing his actions, but his actions are completely and utterly stupid and contradictory and make no fucking sense. And I could not find any set of logical principles to govern his action. And it's all about those dogs, man. I will never understand why in the midst of a critical mission to stop the evil guy from turning all of the Miga into evil killer rabbits and taking over the world, instead of dealing with that problem, he goes and hunts down dogs for a grandma. And it just infuriates me that this is seen as a cute thing instead of a psychotic You must thing. not like dogs um, as much as other people do, Patrick. I think that his inaction caused those that dog's owner to die, or at least get severely injured. So clearly he doesn't like dogs Yeah, but dogs at least the dogs much. are okay. Oh, it makes me angry. <laughs> if, if this was Undertale, or if this was any decent story-driven, it would have given you the option to fight the old lady, get the key and take care of business there and then. And I would choose that option 100% of the time. what percentage of players would go rescue the dogs um, instead of do what you did. I think it would actually be surprisingly high. I think a lot of people would rescue the dogs because it would lead to the true ending where you're nice to everyone. But in terms of what makes sense, no one would ever rescue the hey, dogs. Hey, I rescue the dogs 
and I would rescue the dogs. Yeah, well, so did I. <laughs> I didn't have much choice just, just in the matter. Just think about it, Patrick. You don't know any of these other characters, but you know that dogs are cool. Um, anyway, so- <laughs> you can go to the website. You can read my 2,000-word article on why, quote, ruined the entire story of Cave Story for me, how I lost interest after that point. But I hate, quote, terrible character. The game would have been better with Curly as the main. Yeah, so for best character, and I'm going to cut you off here because I know you can talk about this for hours. I had a lot of trouble deciding, honestly, but after trimming down the fat to just two remaining categories, I guess my runner-up is going to have to go to Sydney from Vagrant Story for being, you know, really entertaining and charismatic and having a lot of really interesting and cool flowery dialogue that I loved reading. Um, I found this character to be very, you know, engaging whenever he was on screen. I wanted more scenes with Sydney, um, as many as I could get. I found him a much more interesting character than the main character of Vagrant Story and probably more so than, you know, any other. This character character drives the plot and you know isn't clearly on one side or the other he's just doing what he's doing for these like reasons kind of beyond you for the most of the game yeah i think what's interesting about sydney as an antagonist as the guy leading you through all these traps is that although it seems at first that it's very obscure what he's doing he actually has a very concrete plan he's deliberately escalating the challenge for you so that you can become a strong enough vessel to best contain the dark and to ultimately inherit the blood sin. And so Sydney taunts you and pushes you in the directions he wants you to go. He's he's the puppet master pulling everyone's strings, even if at the end of the game uh, he does end up getting his strings cut. Yeah, and, like, he starts off the game as the main villain and antagonist, and I'd honestly, even at the end of the game, I'd still say he's sort of an antagonist to some degree, but he's no longer the villain of the story. I think his role shifts quite substantially as you progress through the game, and I really like that it's not so, you know... Uh, clear cut as to who's the villain and what's going on. Sydney has a lot more depth to him than just being this, you know, bad guy that's trying to summon the darkness from Le Monde. He's got a lot more going on than that. And um, while I ultimately think Sydney's motivations are kind of a bit too simple-minded, like I don't think he's actually thought his plan through in great detail, I think that that's just part of his character. I just think that that's who he is. So while I think that, yeah, he could have had a better plan, which, uh, you know, instead of the simple, simplistic one of, oh, we'll just give it to someone who's innocent, I think that he genuinely does believe that that is the best way forward. So, yeah, he's he's a good choice for, for a well, well-written and well-conceived character. Hmm. And yourself? So my runner-up was one we've actually already touched on. Um, So I chose Edgar Tegley from Psychonauts, who is the character uh, we mentioned from Black Velvetopia. And the interesting thing about Psychonauts in particular is that the levels are reflections of the characters. So what that means is you get a lot of detail and information about characters but as you're exploring the level that represents their mind. And I think that there are a lot of uh, well-done metaphors in this level to uh, represent Edgar's state of mind. You've yes, got you mentioned the... this level is one of the ones you liked least during the episode, I believe. Yes. So what I said was gameplay-wise, I thought this level was incredibly dull. 
but I loved the aesthetic and I loved a lot of the ideas present. It's just that gameplay-wise, it was just going through a bunch of narrow corridors. Hmm. But if we're talking about how well does this represent a character, if we take the gameplay out of it, I guess, I think it's masterfully done. Edgar is haunted by his personal demons. He's got... uh, He's basically stuck in the past. He's constantly obsessing over his high school girlfriend who left him for another man. And the level is very cleverly constructed in a way to reveal the ways in which he's lying to himself and his inability to escape this downward spiral. Like, for example, there's a bull that's constantly raging through the streets in a loop. And if ever you get caught by the ball, it brings you all the way back to the beginning of the level in just the same way that his thoughts always return to that depressed state. And the uh, the memories of the high school that he's at is all in the sewers, hidden away in the recesses of his brain, out of sight. But those locker rooms and those school desks are the things that are informing his anguish. Yeah, he's a great character, and I really enjoyed, you know, his introduction is him in the mental asylum, just trying to make some paintings, and then ultimately not being able to complete his painting as he uncontrollably paints this angry-looking bull in the middle of the painting each time. And you kind of, like, you don't know that his anguish comes from his high school sweetheart to begin with. You know, it's it's almost like a mystery to begin with. You have to figure out where this bull has come from and why it's tormenting him so in his inner demons. But this level perfectly portrays that over time and kind of reveals itself in layers and layers as you progress. And this character who... Like a lot of the characters in Psychonauts, who initially comes across as kind of comedic, ends up having a lot of depth to him over the course of the level, which I really like. Um, And I really love that kind of contrast between a lot of the lighthearted tones of the game and the darker kind of sinister aspects. Yeah, it's, it's a tragedy, and it's one that he probably gets over a little too easily, given you just have a boss fight and he's like, oh, I'm all better now. But I mean, (laughs) unfortunately, it's hard to do it otherwise in a simple platforming video game. But yeah, I I agree with you. I think I think Edgar is is very well portrayed. And like you said, I like the way that the mystery is gradually revealed um, because Edgar's lying to himself as to why he can't finish it. And one of the things you do is help him get to the truth of what it's all about. Yeah, and I think um, I actually think that choosing a character from Psychonauts is almost cheating for this category <laughs> because the, the levels themselves are representations of the characters, so you get a much more intimate kind of look at them than any of the the other characters in the games. And I guess um, this is the point where I have to admit to being a dirty cheater because I also chose a character from Psychonauts um, as my favorite character. I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time um, trying to figure out which character was the best written who had the best backstory and motivations and eventually i threw that all away um to go with which character entertained me the most throughout you know our time on this podcast and for me there was a very clear answer that can be traced back through my youtube history because this character i spent a lot of time listening to his dialogue on repeat and you know kind of trying to delve and put together his backstory and for me the most entertaining character in the game by far was boyd the milkman a schizophrenic Mm -hmm. paranoid 
mess of a human being whose delusions lead to some crazy dialogue that you there is clips on youtube that go for like an hour of him just talking to himself in these like rambling nonsensical messes of strings of dialogue and they're so funny and so endearing in many aspects and you know the way boyd's inner self uh, is reflected to the player is of these like suburban streets that twist and turn around each other with no sense of gravity you know you're walking forward in these loop-de-loops and these little knots of streets which are patrolled by g-men um these guys these mysterious looking almost secret agents uh in suits who are constantly looking for the milkman who you later find out is actually boyd himself who appears to be a security guard and just it, the there's um i just want to say there's lots of nice uh, small touches as well like the way the g-man takes photographs of you from every hedge mailbox and lamppost i particularly like that there are no sensors anywhere on the level like there are in every other level in the mind because boyd's a, a, a you know a nutty conspiracy theorist he's got no sensors to remove ridiculous thoughts from his head so instead his mind goes wild yeah and that you know there are these like little girl characters throughout the level that kind of represent his suppressed innocence in a way and when you finally free the like repressed self that he's been hiding for so long he goes nuts and like basically kills them all um, <laughs> which i took to mean like him destroying his innocence and just finally like embracing his inner demons because this is the one character that you don't like cure you just like send him even nuttier <laughs> after going into his mind and i thought it was so funny um, uh, I think Boyd's hilarious. I think he's by far the most entertaining character that we've uh, encountered on the show so far. Yeah, Boyd, Boyd is a fantastic pick. The Milkman level is a classic. Um, I I played Psychonauts when it was released, and the Milkman level and Boyd were everywhere. Every It was all anyone could talk about because it is the standout, brilliant design in the game, in a game that has a lot of brilliant designs. I think in some way that's kind of it's somewhat oversaturated now like i know he's so brilliant that i didn't think to you know put him in this best of category list but he's a he's a fine pick fantastic character wonderful love so what was yours i have a suspicion all right all right james we'll we'll, we'll see if you can go two from two what is your suspicion for what i consider the best character was it Max Payne. Man, you, you I didn't realize I was so transparent. It is indeed Max Payne. I um excellent. I adore Max Payne. I I love the poetic way in which he speaks, um his constant sarcasm and his self-depreciation. I think my favorite moment in his entire character arc is when he discovers the files on the agency behind the drugs and he gets scared. Uh, at the idea that his murder spree is somehow justified like he has a moment of self-reflection like am i doing the right thing and he rejects it he's like no i'm not doing the right thing i'm a i'm a crazy guy on a mission and there are multiple <laughs> times throughout the game yeah. where he demonstrates his awareness at the ridiculousness of his situation max Payne is a very genre savvy game like it knows that it exists in a world of you know, crime movies and fiction. And it really plays it up. And that made it so much more enjoyable to me. If they played this game straight, 
I think I would have hated it. The fact that they knew it was silly and they played around with it instead made me fall in love with it. Max is great. I love his cheesiness and just like the flowery dialogue that he has Mm -hmm. throughout the game. Max was very close to being my pick for the best or runner-up, but ultimately I decided against it as I really like Max's moment-to-moment dialogue, but his entire journey as a whole doesn't quite resonate with me. I didn't find it to be the most engaging aging thing ever so you know on that basis alone i think the other two edged him out slightly but i do think that um max definitely had the best dialogue of any character that we um you know had so far in the show Mm, there isn't much in the way of character development he's pretty much the same at the beginning as he is at the end except maybe he's i don't know he's feeling more cathartic at the end of it to to know that it's finally finally all over for him but yeah, I, I loved I loved how they conceived of this character. And yeah, don't to a degree, I don't care how cheesy it is. I love how he turns even the most boring things into uh into flowery poetic dialogue. It makes it very entertaining. And I treasured every single comic cutscene that he was in. Yeah, Max was an absolute gem. Um I think that if you haven't played Max Payne and even if you don't plan on playing Max Payne ever, you should definitely go and listen to the cutscenes. They're really entertaining. Okay, time to continue moving along, Jimmy. Uh which game had the best OST and which game had the worst? We'll start off with worst. What was your runner up for worst OST? I didn't have a runner up for this section. Um, I was trying to think of one, and I just kept coming back to the soundtrack that I hated the most. Um, (laughs) I think I know what it is. (laughs) I just could not. This soundtrack was just so unbelievably bad. It's probably my least favorite of all time. Are you going to let me guess? Yeah, sure. All right, does it it start with Ape and end in Escape? Oh, it sure does. Monkey Madness (laughs) has a very bad soundtrack. Um, It's honestly, Uh, for the first five seconds of each song, you're like, this isn't too bad. And then that five seconds plays again, and then it plays again, and then it plays again. And your only saviour from this endless nightmare of repetition is actually finishing the level. I think Ape Escape's soundtrack is the number one motivating reason for the main character to finish each level so that the damn soundtrack (laughs) will stop. Um, Uh, It's just, it's low quality, it's repetitive, and it's not particularly catchy. I think that the Hot Springs track is probably one of the worst songs I've heard in a game ever. (laughs) I, um, I didn't love the Ape Escape soundtrack, but it it really amuses me just how much you loathe it. I hate it. I never it, want to play that funny. game again with the sound on. Honestly, I when you told me that you play a lot of games with the soundtrack off, I was like, "That's insane." And then I played Ape Escape, and now I understand. <laughs> yeah, I don't hate it anywhere near as much as you do. I kind of find the soundtrack of Ape Escape is actually pretty unique, like uh, in that combination of of noises and i think that there is a different uh there's a reasonable amount of variety in the tracks that i uh that i didn't hate it anywhere near as much as you do um i i didn't love it i wasn't like this is a this is a standout music track but your unrelenting level of loathing for this soundtrack will never cease to amuse me all right patrick so what's your run route so uh unfortunately ladies and gentlemen we're going to need to 
cut our runner-ups. We are taking far too long to finish this episode and it's going to take us many hours to complete. Some podcasts aim to be succinct. Not us on the Retrospectives podcast, as you can tell. (laughs) It's too hard to resist the discussion. But uh, what we'll do from this point onwards is we're just going to talk about the best and worst in each category. And if you'd like to hear our runner-ups, please do drop by our Discord and I'll talk your ear off about uh, many, 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 many more things of the things I like and hate so um i think that the worst soundtrack and uh i'm sorry i'm sorry to do this to you again bruno but i think the worst soundtrack was armored core uh i just really didn't like the drumming computer sound feel of the music i found it really really repetitive i struggled to you know tell different tracks apart and they just seemed filled with random selections of beeps and boops. Um, there were some soundtracks that were simpler than this one, like, you know, Kirby's, for example. But I thought this was the most bland soundtrack and it was the least enjoyable for me. I liked it overall. I went back and listened to it to it the other day when I was like deciding. And, you know, I don't think it's particularly offensive. I don't mind that kind of... It's almost like drum and bass, but not quite. Um, I think it's fine. I think something like uh, Kirby, Nightmare and Dreamlands, more bland. And uh, I was actually surprised how much I liked the soundtrack of Call of Duty when I went back to listen to it. <laughs> he wanted you wanted to put Call of Duty in more categories. <laughs> I was hoping to shit on Call of Duty some more, but unfortunately, yeah. they did a good job. So they've got that going for I, them. I found something like Kirby, like I didn't like it, but I at least you can make the argument that it's evocative of a particular sort of atmosphere. Well, it has like... It has like three really good tracks and then the rest is like really boring, honestly. Like I love Gourmet Race. It's like an all-time classic song. And I like the um it's like the Battle Tower as well. But then like I can't remember another track at all. So Yeah, so I just found yeah, that is what it just is. plain and uninteresting. If you like it, good for you. But yeah, the most forgettable soundtrack <laughs> of all the ones we've done. So James, what was your best soundtrack? What was the one that stood out above all the others? All right, I know I said we weren't going to do runner-ups, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to go into the runner-ups, but I'm just going to mention, I want to mention Cave Story Plus by name, at least. Um, and you're going to hear some of its music through this episode, and it is an excellent song that has to be, that at least has to get mentioned. But we're not going to go into it, because we don't have time. Sorry, guys. Um, it was really hard for me to decide this best soundtrack. Um, I struggled with The Winner and with Cave Story for a long time because I think they're both excellent. But ultimately, ultimately, my favorite soundtrack that we've done this year goes to Castlevania Symphony of the Another Night. Much like its graphics, the soundtrack in this game is absolutely beautiful. It is the kind of soundtrack that doesn't come along too often, and it goes, and the direction again takes that really elegant ballroom feel that you don't see a lot in modern video games, and it pulls itself off brilliantly. There are tones of funkiness and jazz and just ballroom beauty mixed in, and it does the perfect job of representing the elegant world that you're in and the kind of character that Alucard is. I think it pulled that off brilliantly. One of the things that stands out about Symphony of the Night is the way that each area is themed to a particular track. So as you move from different areas of the castle from one to another, you keep getting hit with these wonderfully different tracks. I think uh, the name of the game, Symphony of the Night, is uh, very, very appropriate (laughs) given how beautiful and varied the music are. There's jazzy pieces, there's rock and roll pieces, 
There's slower waltzes. It's got fantastic variety and nearly all of them are straight up excellent. They are. Shout out to Wandering Ghosts and Dance with the Pals for being some of the songs that I listened to the most this year. I will say that I did have one disappointment with Castlevania Symphony of the Night soundtrack and that comes in the Inverted Castle. Uh, what, I, what I was hoping for was awesome remixes of all the tracks that we just Every had. song played backwards. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, I'm thinking more like what Celeste does with the BNC sides, but maybe that would have been better. But not yeah. even that. There's this one track that plays over like six different sections of the castle when you're in the inverted castle. And it, it's just weird that that's the direction they went when... You know, the yeah. regular castle was so meticulously put together. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. So what was your favourite soundtrack, Patrick? Was well, it Kay's Story? Well, yeah, it's already <laughs> been mentioned by you uh, in your illegal honourable mention, but... Uh, Cave Story soundtrack Does that was... make me three for three, Patrick? <laughs> Cave Stories <laughs> was my favourite, and I think the thing that edged it above Castlevania Symphony of the Night for me is that Cave Story soundtrack is actually two incredible soundtracks there are there is the classic version of the soundtrack which is what i listened to when i played the game for the first time and the remastered version which i played for my second playthrough and which is james's favorite by far and i think that both of them are masterpieces in their own right there are specific songs on each of them that i prefer as uh either one or the other I love the battle themes in this. I love the sense of energy. And I even love the slower tracks. Uh, one of my favorite songs is still the one where you're ascending the outside of the island and it really yeah. slows down. It's really beautiful and melancholic. But the battle themes, oh, you know, the, the, the final battle. They're so battle, intense and high-paced. I love them, yeah. Yeah, They're Heart, incredible. Heart, of, Heart of the Core is my favorite because that was the moment where I had to finally get good. But, you know, in the throne room and the final battle and even stuff like uh, Last Cave are all brilliantly done. This yeah, is... and the um the best gameplay in the entire game, um, collecting the dogs, has the best soundtrack, which is I just think you know perfect. Not even close. Uh, the sound <laughs> the soundtrack in that area is actually pretty bad on the classic version as yeah, well. Yeah, it's way better in the remix. Yeah, I love the um the plus soundtrack. Yeah, I remember when we were comparing those. I couldn't understand why you liked it so much. And then I listened to the remastered version. I'm like, ah, yeah, that, that does make Maybe sense. Maybe that's the real, that's the um, the subtle subconscious reason why you don't like that area. <laughs> it's not because of the dogs. <laughs> uh, I, I don't think so. But yeah, the classic music in that area does suck. But yeah, K, K yeah. Story soundtrack is fantastic. It stands up today. Um, I do love Castlevania Symphony of Night, but I think that overall... Cave Story has more wonderful tracks. So uh, that would be my yeah. pick. And um, I guess this is a great time to put in another little music break. We're uh, running on an hour now. And, uh, you know, some people want to go grab a drink, but for some reason don't want to pause their music player, weirdos. Um, so we're going to be playing a song from Symphony of the Night, which I really enjoyed. And it is going to be Dance of the Pale. Wandering Ghosts is my favorite track. But I think that Dance of the Pals perfectly highlights the uh, soundtrack of a whole, so here you go.
I think this next category is going to be the quickest by far, because instead of talking about four games, we're going to be talking about two games. If we have a different answer for either of the next two games, I'm going to be incredibly shocked, because the next category is, what was the most and least challenging moment in all of the games that you faced? And uh, I, I, I will be aghast if we have different answers for this. Uh, Kirby and F-Zero GX? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well... So let's start, with, let's start with least challenging, which is um, Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland. And I know it says moment, but I just want to nominate the entirety of Kirby the Nightmare in Dreamland. The entire game, because it was six hours long. <laughs> yes. yeah. uh, Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland doesn't pose a single challenge to you know anyone who isn't a new gamer. Um, it's incredibly easy, and for me, that doesn't equate to bad. It just means it's like a comfy relaxing game but Kirby is very very easy um, if you want to play a game that's just you know a casual chill out sesh where you're just going from pretty colorful world to pretty colorful world walking right and doing a couple of jumps then this is the game for you it was very easy so to me, um, but I think that Patrick hates that to me it does equate to bad it's not the absence of challenge in and of itself that makes me frustrated it's the fact that they had the potential to do lots of interesting things with all these cool abilities but they end up being in practice exactly the same they're all ridiculously overpowered so you pick one at random and you will steamroll through every level in exactly the same way so yeah yeah i i think that the entirety of kirby's nightmare in dreamland is a complete snooze fest and uh yeah it's not a moment but you know it felt like a damn long moment to me when i was actually playing the game yeah so what are the requirements that patrick and i have set for ourselves when playing these games for you guys is that we have to finish at least finish the story <laughs> and that's so that we can get you know a good grasp on what the game's like Patrick, however, being the heretic that he is, uh, wasn't able to finish F-Zero's campaign because he just kind of gave up. And, you know, for that, I'm never going to let him forget so, it. So I do have a meta explanation. I, I think that while I didn't finish the story of F-Zero, I did finish the Grand Prix on normal. And that did take me something like 10 to 15 hours to go from moving from easy to normal. And I kind of feel like the Grand Prix are the real kind of meat and potatoes of the gameplay experience, not the story. <laughs> yes, that is an excuse. Like, I'm not denying it. But I did play this game for a very long time. F-Zero is a pretty challenging racing game and i actually didn't know that patrick hadn't really played any racing games before i picked it probably would have started him off on something easier um maybe like if there's a kirby racing game i could have picked that <laughs> that would have been perfect for yeah. me I, I so i specifically nominated level three in f-zero gx because the other point where i stopped which was level seven i didn't spend the five hours it took to try and beat it and then failed I just kind of gave it an hour and then I was like, James, I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I've, I've picked level three because that was that actually took me f probably five hours of gameplay to actually finally beat the 
fucking level, and I never <laughs> want to visit it ever again. I really like so Level Three. I thought it. it was a fun challenge. <laughs> oh, dude, I'm so just. I'm but I so mean, it triggered. was a really just, hard game. Like I put, picked this as probably the hard biggest challenge of beating the story of this game. Um, you know, this game actually has a hard difficulty for its story, and I cannot <laughs> imagine how ball bustingly difficult that would be. Yeah, see, that's the thing. I'm, I didn't even play it on hard. I was playing it on its yeah. normal difficulty. <laughs> And it yeah. was still destroying me. Truly the stuff of nightmares. Um so uh yeah, one day Patrick's gonna have to go back and um beat that game. Or maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I d I don't think so. maybe maybe after we play some more racing games I'll feel more comfortable. Yeah. But I not for a very long time at least. Yeah. Okay, so here, let's go from the shortest category to maybe the longest, um, and that is going to be best story. Thank God we've cut out runners up because we would have talked about this for at least an hour. Because um, mm-hmm. this was actually quite hard. There weren't the majority of the games we played didn't have crazy good stories because I find that older games didn't really focus on that. But the ones that did have good stories had really good stories. And so, you know, I guess we both probably found picking this uh, a bit of a challenge. But before we get to the best story, let's start with the worst story. And I've already kind of gone over mine, which is, uh, again, F-Zero. <laughs> um, which, uh, you know, we're going to be... We mentioned a lot on this show um, as some highs and lows, mostly lows. <laughs> um, and, you know, ultimately I loved that game, but, man, its story content was garbage <laughs> so um i also think f-zero had the worst story um i'll just take a moment to highlight what i think is the worst part of a bad story so there's a point where you get captured by the bad guy so the bad guy has a bomb and instead of you know killing you with the bomb or shooting you in the head or pushing you off the highway to your death he decides that the best way to carry out this murder on the notorious racer Captain Falcon is to strap the bomb to his car and then this bomb attach a special device to it that if you go too slow while driving your car, that the bomb will blow up. But as long as you stay over 700 kilometers an hour, (laughs) the bomb will not explode. And this is the legitimate plan of the ultimate big bad in the game to eliminate you despite him having you in his arms completely helpless now i understand that this is a homage to the movie speed or you know what what, what's it actually called the The bus bus that that couldn't couldn't slow down down. the bus that couldn't slow down the point is that this is the one of the worst villains plan ever conceived at least speed had a cheesy reason behind it there's literally no reason to do any of this hey he's just just, doing it for laughs you know (laughs) it's just a completely contrived method to give you a a cool mission and yeah it's it just stands out to me as the most ridiculous moment in a poor story yeah i've gone over the characters i just think they're like less than one dimensional they're badly written they're not funny uh and the story just basically doesn't exist you called that guy the ultimate villain but there's two more ultimate villains than that guy (laughs) and they have even like less cohesive motivation than he does like at least that guy's like putting a bomb on your car for a good laugh like the other guys i don't even remember what their motivations were See, I wouldn't know because I didn't get that far. Yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, F-Zero's characters and stories fucking suck. 
Um, and Patrick sucks at the game. <laughs> but let's move on to the game story that we liked. Um, and there was actually, for me, four stories that were in the running for this game. And I hazard a guess that your favorite game is going to be on this list. Um, and I, if I have to choose, I'm going to say that your favorite game was story-wise was probably either Psychonauts or Silent Hill 2. So both of them were in my running for best story, no! like you. But uh, I'm afraid you have missed the mark, James, because oh, my, it's vagrant story, isn't my it? favorite story uh, is definitely Vagrant Story. Yeah, I have complained a lot about Vagrant Story on this podcast, about its um, visuals, about its gameplay, about its design choices. But what I cannot fault Vagrant Story on is its plotline and its characters. For those who don't know, I literally wrote like a 3,000 word article explaining in detail all of the intricacies and inner workings of the plot of Vagrant Story. And I think that before I did that, I wasn't so entranced with it. But after I did the research to actually fully understand it, I kind of fell in love with this story. It uses a it uses a device that's pretty rare in video games and even rare in literature in general, in that it kind of drops you in the midst of a complicated setting with a lot of politics and character conflicts. And it doesn't really explain anything to you. The characters have naturalistic dialogue with one another and the story kind of reveals itself in time. And some of my favorite works of literature of all time, Malice and Book of the Fallen by Stephen Erickson, Book of the New Sun by Gene Wolfe, even something as simple as, uh, as June, they do a very similar thing. They've got these very rich worlds with interesting characters, but they don't just do a bloody huge plot exposition dump in your face or hide volumes of information in encyclopedias and menus. Instead, the story is trickled out to you. And if you're willing to do the work to try and understand what's going on, this beautiful tale of Shakespearean politics and characters juxtaposed to one another and betrayal is revealed to you. So, yeah, Vagrant Story's story grew on me a lot with time, but even after all that, I do think it sits above the pack. Not by much. We did a few games this year that I think came very close, but Vagrant Story is on top of the pile for me. More than the vagueness of Vagrant Story, I um, <laughs> really enjoyed the dialogue. I thought the dialogue in this game was brilliant. Um, the localization from Japanese to English that they did was incredible. I think the flowery dialogue that they use is, really adds a lot to the tone, because apparently in the original translation or in the Japanese translation, it's not as kind of cheesy as it is in the English one. And I wouldn't say that it's like flat out cheesy, but they do like ham it up a lot with a lot of old-timey dialogue and i think they do it in a way that isn't you know painfully cringy and it just like works it works really well and i love listening to each of the characters talk to each other in this game i think um for me i found it minorly cringy at points but never anything too bad uh obviously it's not quite shakespeare but when you consider it's like a Japanese translation, it's very well done. Yeah. I do have a dream, James, that one day this game gets from software level voice actors and we can hear some of this dialogue spoken after it's been cleaned up a bit. 
And to me, that would be magnificent because the lack of voice acting is kind of frustrating. But if voice acting had existed, like if this was PS1 era voice acting, it would have sucked. Like it would have been really bad. But with our modern modern voice acting, like I just think of some of the Dark Souls voice acting and I like I just desperately want it for Vagrant Story. It would elevate it even higher. I think the uh, comparisons to Shakespeare here are valid. It's almost it's like a play almost in the way that the characters stand across from each other and kind of, you know, it's like monologuing, but it's not in that kind of really shitty Japanese anime style monologuing. It's more back and forth with a lot of like cool ideas mixed in with the wordplay and that kind of thing i think it works a Mm. lot better than a lot of other japanese games in that respect um and yeah i agree i was definitely one of my choices um but ultimately i couldn't choose vagrant story because the game that i did choose just stands head and shoulders above all the other games that we played in terms of its sheer strength of environmental storytelling and that game was psychonauts We've mentioned the characters in Psychonauts. Um, Both of us picked a character from the game as one of our favorites. And the game's entire world and the way it presents its ideas to you and the way that it juxtaposes these really dark themes in front of these really bright and wacky characters just captures the imagination like no other for me. Psychonauts World is one of my favorites in any game ever. Um, I love the way that characters are presented as levels and the information about their backstories and their futures and their current state of mind is fed to the player audibly and visually and, you know, through the way that the levels are constructed together. Uh, one of my favorite moments story-wise of the entire show was when we were exploring the mind of one of the instructors, Mia. And Mia's this very extroverted, loud character whose inner world is this big party and it's, you know, it's wonderful it's bright and it's colorful until you find this little hole uh, in the corner of her mind and go into it and find this hellscape of burning children um, mm-hmm. that she's kind of like squirreled away in the back of her mind and is desperately trying to suppress, you know, these memories of letting these children in an orphanage burn to their deaths uh, is really shocking, you know, when compared to the rest of the level. And I find that the entire game does a great job with that level of contrast. You know, the majority of this game's excellent storytelling isn't told with dialogue or exposition it's told by you looking at the actual levels in the game and i love that i think um psychonauts is a great choice uh everything you said rings true the reason i didn't pick it is that ultimately while i think the characters are brilliant i think that the overall plot kind of lacks thematic resonance yeah when, when I think of like my favorite stories, I tend to emotionally connect to them on some deeper level. Mm. And while I think that there are small moments, a lot of small moments throughout Psychonauts that make you feel things, at the end of it, I kind of, it was mainly a game I had fun with, not an emotional experience. There are very few games that can make me feel that way, but Vagrant Story and silent hill 2 did did succeed on a level that psychonauts didn't i'm always a sucker for tragedy tragedy yeah. resonates in my soul very deeply and psychonauts is not a tragedy so it was kind of uh up against difficult odds from the get-go uh, i i think it's a wonderful story i think it's well done but it's ultimately too light-hearted for me to to love it as deeply as these other ones the thing that um 
tipped it over the scales for me is the fact that I think that by far Psychonauts is the funniest game that we played this year. Yes. And it's not just the like laugh out loud moments that are funny. There's the, it's got a lot of unexpected humor, which um, is kind of one of my favorites. And I think the, something that wasn't necessarily supposed to be hilarious, but I found to be very amusing um, was this level inside Fred Bonaparte's mind, who is a relative of Napoleon and inside his mind he and his ancestor Napoleon are basically playing chess against one each one another or civilization almost um, across this board game and one of the first things that happens in that level is that you jump into the board game and the seamless transition um, of you being you know human sized to you being this tiny little figure on the board with no load screens um, and just an instantaneous switch was hilarious to me like i was taken aback at how smooth that transition was yeah and i i like all the don't get me wrong like i do like comedy and i liked all the little little moments one of my favorite is when you free the resistant fighter from the prison in uh lungfishopolis where you play as a Godzilla-like monster, and he explains to you that it's time for them to use the blimp to release flyers to the populace to yeah. change their hearts and minds, and they'll take only about six weeks, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which was not what I was expecting when I released them. It's it's a very funny game. It's very snappy and witty, and it's never content to rest on its laurels with just one joke. It keeps throwing uh, more, more and more and more at you. I think my favorite part of the game was also to do with the lungfish um and it was that character is this giant ugly sea monster um with this really deep bassy voice and when you ask the monster what their name is after you know going through their mind and fixing their inner turmoil they pause for this like brief moment before replying with linda <laughs> it's just so good i love yeah, you're it. <laughs> expecting something uh incomprehensible because she says she'll tell you the, the name and the name of her people or something for that effect <laughs> yeah it's just so mundane i loved it um and you know just the idea of that one of these characters is chilling out inside your own mind that you call from your ear by waving some bacon in front of your ear until his head pops out of your ear it's just there's so much stupid humor and i i love stupid humor yeah, it was... um give me give me give me stupid humor any day over uh subtle witty bullshit i don't need that <laughs> it, it was good james but unfortunately you don't have the sophisticated taste that oh I yeah but that's okay well <laughs> We'll get there. You're you're on you're on book two of Malazan. You'll get. Oh there. yeah. All right. Uh, should we move on to gameplay? This this is obviously the best and most important category over all the other rubbish we've been talking about so far. We'll start off with the bad, James. Which game had the worst gameplay in every single game we played? I think that this is going to be another category that we agree on here. Um, I think that the worst single instance of gameplay in any game that we played was Silent Hill 2's combat. Silent Hill 2 is a horror game that, you know, engages the player through spooky atmosphere and weird psychological horror um, that kind of worms into your mind and makes you feel uneasy and spooked and worried about what's around the corner. And then you see a monster come out from the shadows and you, you panic. And then the main character, James, great name by the way, swings his board at the monster and then it hits them, and then he lifts it up above his head, and then he hits them, and then he lifts it up above his head, 
and then he hits them, and then he lifts it above his head, and then he hits them. And you stunlock them while doing yeah, this. So you're in no danger while doing this. Yeah, it just absolutely kills any sense of tension that you were feeling in the level, and you know, really goes against what the what the game was trying to convey. I know that it's a very common thing for horror games to have really clunky ranged combat because it makes it you feel like it's difficult to attack a character which adds more tension. But in this game, you snap onto enemies and when you hit them, they get stunlocked. So as soon as you touch an enemy, there's just no way for you to die unless there's multiple in the room, which, you know, there aren't a heap of encounters where there's more than one dude. And the problem is that the enemies have heaps of health too, so like, they take ages to die, like 20 seconds to kill something that's not fighting back, but it's just so boring, it basically kills my immersion every time there's combat. Yep, you're forced into this endlessly tedious loop of just hitting the monsters over and over again. It's particularly bad for me because there's a melee upgrade that you get where you get to go from wooden stick to steel pipe that on my first playthrough I did not find. So (laughs) the monsters took forever to kill. And the thing is, because I'm genre savvy when it comes to horror games, I was deliberately not using my pistol and my guns when I didn't deem I had to. Uh, So even though it took more time, I was taking the one and a half minutes it took to knock over every enemy. It takes like 10 hits to kill each and every one of these enemies in melee. Yeah. Ah, it's so bad. I it's had people so get bad. mad at me for this as well, which makes me even more infuriated. But I reckon it ruins the game in a, in a large way. Yeah, like I want to stress that I have no problem with clunky combat and horror games. I actually agree with the idea that it makes it more frightening if you can't control your character very well. But this is just boring. Like it just completely invalidates the terror that these enemies are inflicting on you when they're so easy to kill. And then they take so long to kill that it becomes boring. Mm. Like it just ruins the experience i think that if everything was very lethal and like died in one hit it would be much better completely agree uh resident evil 2 the remake i think does it perfectly like that that i I understand that's a modern remake of a game and not an old game but like like what we do here is we don't care we don't care if a game was made a million years ago or not the fact is that silent hills 2's combat to play today sucks ass so Yeah. yeah i hate it good answer Good game, but awful combat system. Um, was that your answer as well? Because I no, assumed it would be. As, really? as much as, as bad as the combat was in Silent Hill, uh, there was one gameplay thing that I think was even worse, and uh, that is in the game Police Noughts. So the gameplay in Police Noughts, a lot of the time, consists of... novel! <laughs> Sorry? The act of clicking through text. (laughs) Yes. So what police knots will do, like, for example, there's a bit where you're in the living room of of your partner's house and uh, someone is cooking dinner for you in the next room. In order to proceed to the next room, this is what you need to do. You need to click on and examine every single object in the room twice and you need to speak to your partner and exhaust every single dialogue option he has, including clicking it twice. So you need to go 
click, 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 examining all this shit you don't give a crap about, speaking to your partner about shit you don't give a crap about, just so the game continues. And I loathe this, and I think it's easily solved. All they needed to do was allow you to click on the kitchen and say, I would like to proceed to the dining room and continue with the game. That's all they needed to do. But instead, they force you into this fucking useless loop of clicking on everything when there's no need to have that. Play it as a cutscene, I don't care. But making me sit through that repetitive waste-my-time garbage infuriates me more than anything else. Yeah, it's not even like it's obvious that you have to click on everything twice or um, there's nothing to tell you that. Uh, A lot of these objects that you click on are like a lampshade and it's like, it's a lampshade. And then the second time you click on it, it's like, it's a lampshade that's also technologically advanced because of this (laughs) bullshit reason. I don't know. I agree with you that that particular section of Police Noughts was quite bad. Uh, It's not the only time it does it, though. There's like six individual occasions. There's a bit where you're uh, exploring the museum at night and you have to click on every single exhibit twice and every single part of every single exhibit twice. Even super early on in the game, when you're on um, on the rocket headed to the orbital station... You need to go through mm. every. Ah, uh, it's it's such a bad gameplay device. I may, maybe there's something about visual novels I don't understand, but to me there should be a main way through the visual novel. Then there should be lots of information on the sides, and it lets you explore that information on the sides as much as you want. If you're forced yeah. to go through everything, why is it even a visual novel? I don't I don't understand what the advantage of having of forcing you to click everything is when you have to do it anyway. A lot of VNs won't even have the option to click to explore stuff. It'll just have, you know, uh, click to progress the dialogue and that's it. I would have preferred that. It won't have this kind of exploration. Yeah, I wouldn't have mind that. But I think um, Police Noughts is the kind of game that you want to explore the world to at least some degree. And I think they could have done a better job. Mm. Um, But to me... That kind of, like, it was painful and it was tedious, but Silent Hill's combat actively worked against the, some of the best things it had going for it, whereas that was just kind of annoying. So, you know, I still think that Silent Hill 2's combat is worse. I, I think the back half is a lot more manageable because it starts throwing shotgun shells at you like crazy, and I feel you can just pretty freely just run yeah. around shooting people. But the first half of that game's combat is very painful, yeah. yeah. Yeah, all right. So, um, you know, Silent Hill 2's combat and Police Snorts' uh, kitchen scene, pretty bad. But what was good? What did you actually like? Uh, I know you find enjoying things difficult, Pat, <laughs> but uh, I guess you had to try and figure that out this time. It was a struggle, but um, I think that the best gameplay in any game we played goes to the first-person shooter known as Quake. I think that Quake's, I guess, legacy has kind of been overshadowed by its multiplayer. Quake is largely remembered as a multiplayer title, specifically Quake 3. But I think that Quake as a single player, you know, FPS experience is fantastic. There are so many clever parts about this game that I think have become underappreciated over the years. For example, just giving you a couple of examples of why I think this game is brilliant. You can dodge literally every single attack in this game in some way or another. 
there are no hit scanners uh, like exist in Doom, for example. I've been playing a lot of Plutonia Experiment recently, a super hard uh do a super hard set of doom maps and one of the things that constantly is irritating me about that game is that the chain gunners and the shotgunners just do damage to you and there's not really a whole lot you can do about it in quake if you move optimally you will take zero damage as you move through these maps that's wonderful it rewards you for playing well i think the second thing i want to nominate as being incredible is the grenade launcher you don't really appreciate just how perfect quakes grenade launchers until you get a chance to play with it it adds so much dynamic feeling to the gameplay i love the way that it creates these interesting moments where you need to be moving backwards as you fire the grenade so that by the time it explodes uh you don't take any splash damage from it i like how you get can shoot round corners in anticipation of enemies Rebounding on its off surfaces is great fun. And you can even do stuff like grenade jumping to completely break the level's architecture. Quake was the best gameplay experience I had. I love it. I think that if you like first-person shooters, you owe it to yourself to play through the single player of this game. I know it's multiplayer is great, but it's single player is more than a match for. Yeah, as I said on the episode, as somebody who's not very good at shooters, I found the gameplay to be pretty poor. Um, and I know that it's because I suck um, and that Quake has the potential to be incredibly fun. But as somebody who's not very good, I found it really difficult to position myself in these really narrow, cramped corridors that Quake had a lot of. Um, this wasn't the kind of like running around freely Tribes Ascend style arena shooter gameplay experience I was hoping for. It was me trying to figure out where to stand and ultimately standing still in a corner and then blowing myself up with a grenade a lot of the time. I sucked at that game and as such um, didn't have a lot of fun. I don't think Quake offers a lot to people that aren't very good. However, if you are good at shooters and, you know, kind of freeform movement, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. I think that uh, being good is a requirement to get fun out of that game, which unfortunately I was not. I think part of the problem was uh, because the explosive weapons were more difficult for you to use, you limited yourself more to the shotgun and nail gun. And while the nail gun yeah. is great fun... Quake's shotgun sucks. Like, it's one of the yeah, worst shotguns in any video game I've played. It's incredibly disappointing. If you're only using the shotgun and nail gun primarily, I can see why your enjoyment would go down. For me, Quake's signature weapon is the grenade launcher. Uh, the game showers you with, with rockets to use with it. And if you're, if you're able to use it and maximize that weapon, just that weapon... I think you'll have a fantastic time. Yeah. So for me, I had trouble choosing on this one, um, but ultimately I think that my favorite uh, gameplay experience came from playing Psychonauts. And uh, I'm going to mention this game a lot throughout the episode because I love it. Um, but Psychonauts proved to me something that I suspected for a long time but can't really put my fingers on and that Psychonauts didn't have this deep 
uh, tactical gameplay with many systems that you had to learn. Uh, it wasn't tight, it didn't have a solid foundation. This was a very loose game that did whatever it wanted, whenever it wanted. The, the jumping and platforming in this game didn't even feel that great, but every time I picked it up to play, it threw something new at me that was fun and engaging. This game had variety, and to me that towers high above any of the other mechanically deep or engaging games that we did last year. Um, I think that Psychonauts proves without a doubt that true engagement doesn't come from, you know, well thought out systems. It comes from a well crafted experience in whatever form that it wants to take and, you know, thought it was an utter joy to play. This is this is the most wrong you've been so far on this episode and that's saying a lot because you've been wrong several times. Psychonauts gameplay is bad. Like it's not it's not so bad, you know, I can't stand it. It's not like armored core level bad in its clumsiness and awkwardness. You literally wrote an article about despite its like sloppy gameplay, it was still a joy to play. Correct. I said in spite of its sloppy gameplay. The sloppy gameplay is the worst aspect of the game. The rest of the game elevates it, but the gameplay experience is horrendous. If you strip away the novelty and the visual design and the presentation... But all that's part of the gameplay, like running around and collecting stuff and exploring the new areas and taking part of what the game's throwing at you is part of the gameplay. The gameplay is selecting powers and using them. It's jumping on enemies. It's shooting enemies. I think that you're perhaps... Uh, I mean, in a broad sense, yes, gameplay is this big, is is the experience. But to me, this category was more about something a little bit more mechanical, about something a little bit more intrinsic. I think I think the gameplay of Psychonauts is bad. I think that, for example, that Black Velvetopia level that we were talking about, I as much as I love the level, I thought the gameplay on that level was horrendous. It's just... You go down a corridor a bit, go down a side path, and then you stop and go into a card. You go down a corridor a bit, go into a side path, go into a card. Rinse and repeat four times with a near-identical boss fight four times. That is not engaging or interesting gameplay. I'm playing Psychonauts for the story and the presentation and the creativity nothing to do with the intrinsic gameplay experience what i'm trying to get at is like i actually like agree with you and that the mechanical gameplay is really poor but to me the um the presentation blends together with the gameplay in such a way that it becomes fun again like i'm constantly wanting to move forward as raz to discover something new in the world to fight to like use my powers on each character in weird ways to learn about the character like throughout the campsite um you can use all of your powers on each of the like little camper characters to discover something new about them like you can set them on fire to get new dialogue you can read their minds to get new dialogue stuff like that the the gameplay and the story tie together in such a way that I love interacting with the world. Even if, you know, the controls aren't the tightest or the mechanical puzzle solving isn't the most difficult or the well thought out, the way the game blends its presentation and its gameplay together, like, ultimately meant I had the most fun playing this game. Um, compared to the other titles we did this year. I guess I can't visualize it the way you do because, yes, as an overall experience, I, I see what you're saying, but the gameplay, I think, is distinct from using your powers on a camper to get a cool reaction. I love the presentation of Psychonauts. I think it's a really good game, 
But I think the gameplay is the worst part, and I can definitely see the clear dividing line between the gameplay and the presentation. I think it does a good job hiding that line, but that line is there, and it's very obvious to me once you start delving into it. Yeah, but you never experience the gameplay by itself, right? You always experience it in conjunction with everything. I'm not denying the value of your experience. Like, if if you don't see the dividing line, that's fine. But I've I've told you how I feel about Black Velvetopia. When the I I guess I can see behind the curtain. I can see that divide. I guess, yes, if you don't see that divide and it all blends together, it would be an enjoyable gameplay experience. But there was an obvious divide for me. If I had to kind of remove everything from every game that we've played so far, I'd probably say something like Battle Network 3 from a purist gameplay point of view. Mm-hmm. But i can't really do that like to me the gameplay of psychonauts is very closely interlocked with its presentation and like the things you are doing aren't fun in a purely mechanical point of view they're fun in context with what you're doing take for example the lungfishopolis level what you're doing in that level is essentially walking around and not doing anything but it's really fun because of the presentation because you're giant in this city and you're holding up your t-rex hands it makes the gameplay engaging like you want to be like role-playing as this big godzilla monster in this world and i can't separate the presentation of that level from the gameplay okay well i guess i can maybe we just have a definitional dispute I would describe that level, for example, as being poor gameplay, but great presentation. And I can easily separate those two things. But uh, yeah, I think Mega Man Battle Network 3 is a uh, is a is more more in line with what I was expecting you to answer. But I don't want I don't want to say your answer is is illegitimate or anything. If you yes, truly you do. can't, if you <laughs> truly lie, can't, Patrick. if you truly can't separate those things, I mean, fine. But I think that this question, at least the way I read it, was really asking about mechanics. Mechanically, which game had the was the best, you know, gameplay? Not pretending things that aren't gameplay uh, are gameplay, like you seem to be. I think doing. you do want to invalidate my answer, Christ. That was uh, rough. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, allow us allow us to move on to uh, to a new category. But before that, let's have the final music break, Patrick. With Ooh, whatever good idea. the hell was your favorite song of the year? Uh, so my favorite song of the year, I feel I have to nominate Cave Story, which was you know my favorite soundtrack of the year. And the one the song I want to pick is Heart of the Core. Uh, it's just such a great boss track. It's filled with fantastic energy. And as I struggled again and again against the heart of the core in this fight, I found the energy to keep going, thanks in part to this wonderful music. So uh, this is Heart of the Core from the Cave Story Remastered soundtrack.
Alrighty, that was heart of the core. So I guess this moves us on to the second last category before the best game, and that is which is your favorite and least favorite section or sequence in a game? So I guess starting with the worst? Yeah, so the worst for me was I kind of I kind of feel bad, right? Because this isn't exactly a fault of the game. But it is the worst experience I had playing these games this year, so I decided to put it here anyway. And that was when I soft locked myself with a melee moveset in Mega Man Battle Network Three. What? There's a um, there's a part of Battle Network Three where you kind of get entered into a competition and you get given a different deck to the one that you've gradually been building. And the deck that I got was one that was filled with melee moves. Like it was it was a really strong move set for the challenge. Like I was able to blitz through it pretty easily. Because you got a lot of high damaging moves and most of the enemies were pretty weak to the melee attacks. So when you finish that section in this underground hell ridden area, you move on to the next stage of the competition where you have to fight against um this person called Kingman. And the idea is that once you move out of the caves, you swap your decks out, right? Like you swap to your original deck and then you're better able to take on the general challenges. I did not do this. Uh, I didn't realize that it wouldn't automatically do it. And what I did was because I was playing on an emulator, I created a save state. Uh, I overrode my old save state at the beginning of this oh fight after <laughs> I'd already got into the fight. And the thing about Kingman is your goal is to kill the king on the back row who and the king is protected by <laughs> pawns and a knight. So you only get these super brief windows to get ranged attacks in and all melee moveset is completely useless. Like you can't you can't kill the pawns and clear the way. You just cannot do anything. So I struggled for about I don't know an hour trying to beat Kingman in with my melee moveset before I gave up hope and had to load a backup save I'd made, like like a hard save, like from two hours previously. <laughs> so it was my fault. Like, I, I freely admit that I'm playing with save states. I'm not playing with, um, with the saves like the game had intended. Because what should have happened is I should have, you know, died and then got sent back a short way to the previous proper save. But because I was using save states, I just completely screwed myself and I lost hours of time over it. I, uh, I stopped playing the game for a few days. Much after like Patrick thinks of my take on the previous question, I think Patrick has interpreted the question wrong. <laughs> if we were interpreting the question as our, as our worst experience on the show, I would have chosen Prince of Persia in a heartbeat. Because <laughs> uh, there was a section of the game where every time I would progress it would crash to the desktop <laughs> and I was trying to bash through that for like, I don't know, like an hour and a half before the game finally let me get through the section without it crashing <laughs> um but i don't think that counts um and although that was horrendous i think my pick for worst gameplay section overall goes to this section in call of duty where you have to defend this little house mm. from waves and waves of dudes 
I hate this section. There are bullets coming through the walls and there are tank shots coming through windows and there's hundreds of dudes popping out of holes wherever you go. Uh, it's like there's no clear way to kind of defend the house. You just kind of have to hope you do the right thing at the right time and that the AI of the enemies lines up with what you're doing. And the AI of your teammates is useless, like completely useless. Sucks. They're yeah. so bad. I had to save scum this, uh, this bit. I'm not going to lie. I'm not ashamed to lie. This bit fucking sucked. I was playing on Veteran uh, the first time I played through this, which means that there are no health packs, so... I save-scummed the entire game, but I was save-scumming literally every three seconds in some parts of this mission. Uh, I eventually found a spot, like a specific spot I could prone where the tanks outside wouldn't kill me and where the enemies would kind of run up the stairs in a nice line and I could gun them all down. But I don't think I would have finished this mission if I didn't find that kind of glitch spot. It's just... Enemies at five directions at once. Your AI teammates aren't covering any angles. It's it's completely ridiculous. I there's there's one other defense section that's bad, but this house section is whoa, it's really bad. Terrible, terrible. Good good choice, James. I I think I I think I agree with your choice. That would be definitely up there. For- yeah, it sucked. Um, I never want to play that house mission again. Um, so yeah, let's um, let's move on to best sequence or section, Patrick. Um, I think there are a lot of good sections from games we played this year. Uh, a lot, actually. Heaps. Um, so narrowing it down to two was really difficult for me. Um, and I kind of I'm kind of guilty with the one I chose because it's a very mm. it's a very James thing to choose. Uh, I don't think many other people would agree. With with me um one of the reasons that i chose banjo kazooie as one of the games to play early on in the show is that i love running around and collecting things even though it's like it's really it's not mechanically engaging it's just super cathartic for me i love picking up stupid knickknacks on the floor and so it might surprise you that banjo kazooie isn't uh the section that i'm talking about i'm actually talking about uh the section very early on into psychonauts again uh, in the campsite where you run around picking up knickknacks in the camp and doing little platforming sections and finding arrowheads and figments and uh, especially the scavenger hunt stuff. I think you were supposed to do this section in like maybe three or four goes as you played the game. I did the whole thing in one like couple hour sitting because I was having so much fun. Yeah, no, it's I, I don't hate the scavenger stuff. I'm not as into collectibles as you are but i did like how it was all optional like none none of this is forced on you so i kind of did it a little bit and every now and then when i got a new power up that let me get a new collectible i duck back and get it but i will say i enjoyed it i didn't find it intrusive at all which i really appreciated and it was kind of fun the items you were collecting they were the sort of random yeah. knickknacks that you would expect to be on a um, on a scavenger hunt list for a summer camp. and one of the things that i think made it especially memorable for me is the fact that the area is littered with all your fellow campers who each have their own like wacky dialogue that's really funny and like enjoyable to engage with and as you explore you know every character has their own like mini subplot they that do. keeps expanding as you encounter them over and over in the different 
sections and so as you're kind of like exploring the campsite your adventure is constantly interrupted by these little lines of dialogue that are really funny to engage with and I just loved that I loved running around learning about each of the characters while like seeing this little knickknack on top of this hill and having to figure out how the hell I get up there um, there were these psychic bears that you encountered <laughs> in the forest that I thought were hilarious and trying to figure out how to actually get past them was enjoyable. I just, the whole thing was really, really fun for me. My uh, my favorite two campers to keep finding were these cheerleaders. There were a male and female cheerleaders. I don't know if they were brother and sister, but whenever they saw you, they obnoxiously cheered and made up cheers and they're so cheesy and over the top. <laughs> Very stupid. But then you'd encounter them when they didn't realize you were there, looking off into the sunset, talking about their joint suicide that they were planning. Yeah, and it was, it was like, so what, what am I even <laughs> listening to right now? Yeah, I thought this was a kid's game. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. I love it. Uh, it just constantly oh. finds a new way to surprise you. And I think that's great. So um, what's your favorite section of the game? I think you're going to be picking something a bit more mechanically in depth than I did. I am. Although I, I think that this one isn't like, it's not crazy mechanical. It's, it's more of an ex a mini experience. So we're going back to your least favorite game once again, Prince of Persia, Warrior Within. And the moments i want to highlight are the dahaka escape sequences those are actually really good yeah no that they're, they're really the highlight of the platforming i think in this game yeah. prince of persia warrior thin has really really satisfying platforming where you kind of have to string together these acrobatic uh maneuvers you know um as you uh you know swing on poles and you run on walls and you climb up ropes and you hang from ledges and it's really sweet traversing these environments as you transfer from one to the other but the best of these are the dahaka escape sequences where this giant evil monster called the dahaka chases you and you have to escape him and if you're not fast enough he catches you and you die the thing that makes it so good is that in order to make it through the dahaka escape sequences you need to kind of perfectly hit all these acrobatic sequences in a row and what it means is that when you finally finish it you have this fantastic sense of flow throughout the entire extended acrobatic maneuver it's it's super satisfying to finally pull off you know i recommended it at the time but i have revised my opinion since then i don't think um prince of persia is super worth going back to on the basis of its poor combat but i think that the platforming and especially the escape sequences are superb uh and like really really fun playing warrior within it makes me wonder why more i why there hasn't been another third person um platforming game like this we've kind of moved on to more dynamic platforming as opposed to ones that kind of lock you along this a particular path at least in the 3d space uh stuff yeah. like uncharted lets you do all this cool stuff but it doesn't it doesn't feel quite the same, and I, I wish... What are you talking about? Uncharted locks you in place the same way. It's just not as impressive. It feels more cinematic as opposed to mechanical, I guess. Yeah, there's, like, barely any choice when doing the platform when you're Uncharted. It, like, really locks you into place. Sh sure. Sorry, that bad example. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is there seems to be a focus on mechanics in Prince of Persia as opposed to cinematics. Yeah. Uncharted wants to give you a cool 
cinematic experience as you're sliding down the side of a mountain and explosions are behind you. Prince of Persia's emphasis is on having tight platforming. Yeah, no, it's really good. I think that's a, a good option to choose, although I was surprised you chose that. Um, there were a few others that I would have thought you would have gone for, but no, all or less, pretty good. There are basically lots of um, lots of games and lots of parts of games that I really liked. I just thought that those escape sequences were a standout and I, I really want to see something similar like that replicated today. I guess uh, one of the things I thought you might choose is the Lost Vikings. When you finish that game, it's really good because you don't have to play it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that, that definitely does that feel good. That was a good, good moment, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess that leaves us with only one category left. And the that grand was finale. The grand finale. The most important category, worst game of the year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, James, um, you you start us off. I don't think it's any surprise, though. Everyone knows what I'm going to pick for my least favorite game of the year, and that was Call of Duty 1. I'm sorry, Patrick. I know you enjoyed this game and you like your shooty-shooty-bang-bang games, but Call of Duty 1 was the least enjoyable game I played this year because, as I said with its graphics, Call of Duty commits the most cardinal sin in all media, and that's being boring. There is nothing interesting that this game does by modern day standards. Maybe it was novel for the time that it came out, but as a modern day gamer, there is nothing in this game that stands out as innovative or exciting or just enjoyable to play. It's just a mediocre first person shooter with boring brown graphics um, and, you know, a decent soundtrack at best. I just did not enjoy it. This game is only eight hours long and I just would not do it again. I had more fun playing Kirby Nightmare in Dreamland, which is ultimately a pretty dull experience, but it's nothing compared to the mind-numbing boredom I felt while playing Call of Duty. It's it's really weird. I guess I kind of do understand where you're coming from, but it's one I guess I fundamentally disagree with. As a person who's played pretty much every Call of Duty game there is, I don't think Call of Duty 1 is the best campaign ever or anything, but there was something about it that I really appreciated it compared to the modern titles, which is that I think modern Call of Duty games really strive to control the experience to an absolute T. They want you to look in the right direction, see the particular explosions. They make you wait behind locked doors so that an NPC can come up to make sure you're not getting too far ahead of the action or have killed too many guys they give you you know particular weapons in particular spots to force you to hit that difficulty curve in that spot etc and i think that call of duty one kind of as an older take on the fps genre steers away from that cinematic control that the modern games must have over your over your every movement but it still delivers the meaningful you are a grunt soldier on the ground carrying out a mission experience, which is what I want from my historical first person. I guess I just don't find that engaging or interesting as a point of reference. Like, there was this period in time, I think shortly after Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare came out, um, that shooters were absolutely everywhere on the market. Everyone was making shooters, and I played so many shooters during that period that just the base core idea of clicking on heads is now unfun for me. Um, And it has nothing to offer beyond
beyond that. There's no enemy variety. The levels you do are like, there's a little bit of variety, like there's some on-rails turret sections, I guess, but you don't do anything interesting. You don't learn anything cool about World War Two. In fact, oh, it lies to you. Yeah, like, it doesn't offer you anything as a player. Like, you don't go from being this little grunt to being this, you know, there's no progression. You're just a boring grunt the entire game. You don't evolve as a person. You, there's no characterization for any of the characters. Like, I, do, I, do, I just don't know what's supposed to be engaging if you don't like the core gameplay, which I really don't care for nowadays. Yeah, it's just surreal for me. You know, I, as you know, James, I've put literal multiple thousands of hours into Counter-Strike. So there's something about clicking on heads that I find intrinsically engaging. Like that, that sort of gameplay really speaks to me. I enjoy the combination of reaction speed and crosshair positioning and everything involved with playing a first-person shooter. But then you go and say that you didn't like police snorts because you didn't like clicking on things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, if they'd added a timing minigame to it, I may have enjoyed it more. Uh, I'm sure you (laughs) would have loved that. (laughs) But yeah, I love Counter-Strike. I love first-person shooters. I think Call of Duty... uh, it's not the most technically advanced, but it does offer something unique. Uh, uh, almost, almost forgotten. Maybe forgotten is a better word. It's it's a forgotten way of designing a shooter with looser with looser you know control on the player, and I really appreciate it. I thought uh, I thought Halo was a much better example of looser control on the player than Call of Duty One was, honestly, when we did it. Yeah, Halo. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, I love Halo, and I would I would rank halo above call of duty but it, it, they're very to me they feel like very different experiences yeah i think halo is like in a category of its own separate from you know your hit scan call of duties and your classic fps's like doom or quake you know i i love halo i think it's a fantastic game but um call of duty in that hit scan first person genre offered a unique experience in that context. yeah i um i would take one of the arena shooters over a call of duty style game any day i think that yeah, the um that's fair. i think that as you said before the idea that being able to dodge every single attack in quake is really satisfying um and i really like that as opposed to hit scan weaponry which i find kind of takes the fun out of dodging stuff honestly yeah that's reasonable like like we talked about in the episode it's more about your reaction speed and pre-positioning um, to get the drop on enemies as opposed to your, your mm. positioning. And I, I can definitely see why you w- would prefer positioning over uh, reaction time. Yeah. So I guess um, what was your least favorite game of the year? It's kind of funny because you were talking about blandness um, as your as your main reason for disliking Call of Duty. And I have the exact same reason for selecting my worst game which is kirby's nightmare in dreamland yeah i think that this game offers the player basically nothing i was completely and utterly unengaged with its characters its story its music but most of all its gameplay i found it dull i was holding down the right key and spamming attack and still making my way through the level just fine when I should have been excited by new power-ups, I instead just didn't care because they were all so strong and overpowered. It didn't matter what I had to get through the level. There were no, there weren't any really cool secrets or anything to discover. I just completely unengaged. I had worst individual times with a lot of aspects of a lot of games, right? 
like Silent Hill 2, as you mentioned, is a moment like that frustrated me. But the biggest crime that Kirby commits is that it's boring, incredibly boring. And I just couldn't engage with it. Yeah, I think there's a level of bad where it goes back around to being entertaining for how bad it was. Like Prince of Persia had so many buggy piece of shit levels, but like... I have stories to tell people now that I've played them, right? Like, it was so bad, it's good. <laughs> um, but I, I guess the same can't be said for Call of Duty and, uh, in your case, Kirby. I got a lot of endearment out of Kirby. I think it's very colorful, very, you know, endearing to play through, even though it is very easy and the gameplay is pretty dull. Although I will say, those levels where you got to be the racing wheel and you got to speed through like Sonic was kind of fun. Yeah, it wasn't... I don't want to say it was like a zero out of 100. There were, I didn't hate like every single second i spent with this game it's just it's very hard for me to point out things i liked i guess even the games that frustrated me and made me angry and annoyed they all had aspects of them that i enjoyed or that i at least could say were interesting sure kirby just was a blank piece of paper to me i i didn't get anything out of it at all and Yes, in general, I'm cynical and I don't like happy themed things, so that that didn't help either. Yeah. If it was a if it was a true nightmare, if we're talking nightmarish visuals, I reckon this wouldn't have been my worst game. But it was way too happy. It's too happy, really. It just made Patrick uncomfortable because he thought it he did. he thought his felt he felt his heart growing two sizes that day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So, um, all right, let's get to the real best category of the year, and that is the best game. Patrick, I think you can tell what my favorite game is going to be. So let's start with you. Yeah, it's one. Um, there's, there's one game that's uh, won an awful lot of categories for you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, my favorite game of the year, the best game I played for the podcast, was I think rather unsurprisingly, if you guys have a grip on my tastes, at this point was Quake. The best gameplay experience was the best game for me because ultimately that tends to be what I care about. And Quake is a sort of game like Doom where it immediately drops you into the gameplay and the entire time you're engaging with this game, you're engaging with the gameplay. There's no story or characters or any of that nonsense. It's just, you know, however long it takes to play, like only six hours. Six hours of killing monsters, bunny hopping around like a madman, grenade jumping, dodging enemy projectiles, just plain flat out fun. I love this game so much that not only did I write an article on it espousing its brilliance, I also, the moment I finished this game on Ultraviolence or whatever the Quake equivalent is, I immediately started a new game on Nightmare, the hardest difficulty, and played through it again before we had even done the podcast. This game is fantastic. It has been forgotten by history somehow. The single player has been forgotten. I don't know how. It's great. Play it. You won't regret it. If discovering Quake as a brilliant game is the only thing I got out of this podcast, I'll be happy. It's okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um i don't know i my experience with the game as i mentioned wasn't super great so uh for me it was just you know another one on the list of just okay um it wasn't bad i really liked its atmosphere and soundtrack but it was just okay i'll, I'll just i'll just bring up one more thing i guess um there was a game released in 2018 called dusk and Dusk is a modern-day masterpiece. It's a, it's kind of like an ode to classic FPS games of that 90s era, but, you know, with a lot of clever modern 
adaptations without, you know, removing the essential gameplay. And I've heard a lot of people talk about the inspiration for Dusk. They'll talk about Stalker and Deus Ex and Doom. But the true inspiration for Dusk is Quake. Because there's so much about the essential gameplay of Dusk that it owes to Quake. And if you enjoy Dusk, and you should, because Dusk, I will even admit, is a better game than Quake, you have to check out the original. And I think you'll appreciate it all the more. Yeah, maybe one day when I don't suck at shooters and don't despise <laughs> them with every fibre of my being. Um, well, but see, until season then... two. Season two, season we'll do two. a FPS. We're, we're doing more shooters, James, so... I'll make I'll make you love them. Ugh, I think you're just going to make me hate them more, honestly. But anyway, <laughs> um, I think uh, if you haven't guessed what my favorite game is by now, you probably haven't been listening to the episode, so good job. Um, <laughs> it's very obviously Psychonauts. Um, I love this game. This game was one that I played a couple times previously, but it never quite connected with me then. This time, however, i blown away that... It's as good as it is. This game is an absolute gem. Psychonauts has the greatest environmental storytelling of any game I've ever played. It has some of the most endearing, funny characters in a game I've ever played. And it has, like, a really good soundtrack and some, like, you know, fun, really fun gameplay that's tied with its visuals and its presentation. It just makes for an overall incredible experience. Uh, This is a game like no other in my mind. I adore Psychonauts. I think it is probably one of my favorite games of all times, not just on the show. If Psychonauts 2 is anywhere near as good as the first game was, well, I think that this coming year is gonna be a hell of a year. You know how I knew this was going to be, you know, when I, I knew for sure that this would be your game of the yeah. year? It was when you uh, selected uh, Psychonauts as having the best gameplay while at the same time admitting that it didn't have good gameplay. That was that was very <laughs> impressive mental leap of logic to justify. And I, I was blown away and I was like, yep. James loves this game. This is one of his favorite games of all time. Congratulations. You could almost say mental gymnastics. <laughs> Ooh, nicely done. Also, I agree. I, I also I always like the yeah. self burn. That's very appreciated. Um, yeah, I just I love this game's humor. I love its dark and light charms that contrast against each other. I love that it never settles into a steady rhythm of you doing the same thing over and over, um, or even slightly. Sure, you go into level and then overworld and then level, but you do so in a really off kilter rhythm with a really vibrant, bizarre art style that never kind of settles for doing the same thing i just i I love this game i love collecting things i love running around and discovering characters through environmental storytelling and i just i love psychonauts so fucking play it it's a great game you should play it it stood the test of time um it could never be my best game of the year because i think that it would have taken something truly truly spectacular to uh have the game with the best gameplay not be my favorite game but uh Psychonauts didn't quite do it, but but it is really a wonderful game. I highly recommend it. Yeah. So um, and that's I guess that's all she wrote. See you. <laughs> what? <laughs> See you. Oh no, no. Let's do this right. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to us so far today. You have been listening to the Retrospectives podcast. This was our Game of the Year episode where we went through all of our favorite games of the games we played in 2019. 
podcast. You can find all of our, our podcasts and a bunch of articles and our social media links over at our website, which is rspodcast.net. Most importantly, uh, what we would love for you to do, if you feel so inclined, is join our Discord server. We've got a bit of a community forming. Um, we have lots of arguments and we continue a lot of the arguments from the show on our Discord. And we would love if you would drop by. So we'll pop a link to that in the show notes. Come say hi. Come argue with us. Come tell us we're idiots as long as you tell us why. Especially if you have something negative to say about Patrick. I love reading those comments. I think my favorite uh, moment of the entire podcast was reading one of our reviews. Um, oh, that's <laughs> and, uh, right. What did it say? It said, Patrick <laughs> is so... I have it on my desk, uh, desk, uh, desktop titled Quality Feedback. Okay. Pat is so negative and rude. I don't like hearing his opinion. To each their own, but let people enjoy what they like. No need to be disrespectful to your friend or other people's opinion. If I enjoy a... So negative. I was negative. And rude. See, the thing is, I was negative and rude. Like, I'm not denying that. It's you just, are negative and rude, it, It's Patrick just Arthur. that negativity and rudeness is part of my charismatic person charismatic personality that people come to the show for. so i will continue to bully james into submission yeah yeah good luck with that buddy <laughs> <laughs> if anybody else wants to let patrick know how unbelievably rude he is feel free to leave us a one-star review on all of our media <laughs> <laughs> well i'm i'm really looking forward to hearing what people have to say about our discussion on best gameplay that was that i i'm looking forward to that I, that is not what I was expecting, and I think the chips are going to fall in my favor, but we'll see. Anyway, um, so what do we got for next fortnight, Patrick? This is the end of a two-part series for the uh, games of the former year, and we're finally going back to a regular schedule. So, what are we playing? Wait, it's my choice. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, James, we're we're just about we've finished our Christmas break, and it's time for us to resume regular programming. Uh, with uh, doing a new game each and every fortnight. So, Jimmy, what game are we playing through and judging for next fortnight? Um, so, recently on the show, we've had this trend where Patrick picks a boring game and I pick a crazy a game. game. So I thought it was time to end that trend and just pick something a bit more normal. So <sighs> next fortnight, we're going to be playing a game called Katamari Damacy, one of the safest picks uh, I could ever make. Katamari Damacy is a game about rolling stuff up into a ball. For those who cannot see through James's blinding sarcasm, this is one of the weirdest games James has picked, and James has picked a lot of weird games. So what? Don't worry, guys. When it's my turn, we'll be going back to good games, but for the next fortnight, we've got to endure James' obscure weird selections. Yeah, so uh, until next time, adios. Adios, amigos. Adios.